you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Today we're going to be continuing in our uh, sermon series on spiritual disciplines. So the first cu- a couple of weeks ago, Greg preached on how to read the Bible, and then last week I addressed how to pray, and then this week we're going to talk about how to worship. So just a few introductory thoughts on worship just in general. We were created for worship in everything that we do. That's what God has created us for, to bear his image, to worship him, and we worship constantly. I don't know if you know this, but we worship constantly. It's not just something that happens when there's music playing, when we're singing, we're meditating. We worship constantly. It's like a flashlight that's always on or a fire hose that's on full blast. It's pouring out energy and affection onto whatever we point at. So think about concerts. Think about sporting events. Think about graduations or game shows. Think about potty training. What is our reaction when something amazing happens? We lift our hands, right? We use our physical energy, our legs jump, our arms stretch out, our hands clap, our voices cheer and yell, our pulses race. We get that shot of adrenaline and we feel joy. Not only do we spend our physical energy, we spend our mental energy as well. We we spend our our mental energy by memorizing information, by talking, by analyzing, by reviewing, by listening to podcasts, reading books, taking in information, processing it, thinking about it, spending our time and mental energy on things. And we also spend our time and money worshiping. We shop for things, we buy things, we maintain things, we improve things, we store things. There's all kinds of things that we worship. We can worship cars or houses or safety or children or pets or money or people. So... We spend our time and our money and our attention and we spend our affections. Matthew 6.21 tells us that wherever our treasure is, that's where our hearts are too. All of these things tell us what we're worshiping. And this is across the board. It's across disciplines. It's across interests. It's across time and culture. Every human does this. The great theologian John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory that churns out idols, which we then worship. We all worship because it's what we were created to do, this all-consuming task of pouring out affection onto other things. That is what we do as humans. So today, with the sermon title of How to Worship, it's fairly simple. We just do. But maybe we need to tweak it a little bit. Maybe we need to know how to worship rightly. Or maybe to answer that, we need to know what to worship, or rather, who. And for that, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. So, immediately out of the gate, everybody's like, oh, Revelation, oh no. (laughs) Settle down, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through it together. Revelation opens with a vision of Jesus instructing John to write down what he sees and what he hears. He writes a brief letter to seven churches, um, and then he encourages them in their perseverance under persecution and suffering. He urges them to repent for tolerating false teachers, and he calls them to faithfully endure until the end. That's the first three chapters of Revelation. Then we have a vision of heaven, which leads to the rest of Revelation, which we'll save for another time. 
But this initial, initial vision in chapter 4 is what we will discuss today as we look at how to worship. And we need to be really careful when we study visions um, and, and, it's, and we study revelation and things like this. It's very helpful to break it down like this. This comes from a leading New Testament scholar named Tom Schreiner. Brilliant man. Um, highly encourage him, his writings. But, the, but he's, he has, there's, there's four levels or three or four different levels that you read when you're studying a vision like we see here today in Revelation 4. There's the words that are written. They're, they're actually written on the page, the actual words that were communicated, the, the, the verbal communication there. Then there are the visions of what was being described. So John is seeing something and then what he writes it down. And so there's the visions themselves. And then there's the meaning of the visions, the significance for the audience. The key is to not get stuck on the words or the visions themselves. The key is to move through them in order to get to the significance, what the Lord intends us to know. He doesn't intend us to focus on the crazy, weird things that are happening in Revelation. He's not intending us to get focused on only the words, although those are very important. What he's trying to get through to us is a a very significant, meaningful thing, and that's what we're trying to get through today. So the vision we're going to talk about today is symbolic. It is not to be interpreted literally. Please understand that. This is a vision that John is seeing, and he's struggling to communicate it in human language. And I think we can kind of identify with that. We can kind of understand that. How do you communicate something that is infinite? How do you, how do you describe something that is indescribable? That's what he's trying to do. That's what we're going to talk about. So let me pray for our time, and then we will dive right on into Revelation 4. Father, I praise you for your word. I praise you for your revelation that you have revealed yourself to us. I pray that we would submit ourselves to this text today, that we would understand how we are to to rightly worship you, that you are worthy, that you are holy, and that you are our king. So, Father, we, we praise you. We love you. We ask your hand over this time. We ask the Spirit to be mighty, to open our hearts to hear. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's take a look. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit at a time, and we're going to kind of piece this together. Actually, you know what? I'm going to back up. I'm going to see if I can read the whole thing for us, and um, we we will see what happens. (laughs) We'll just see what happens. So Revelation 4, read the whole chapter. Then after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, four eyes in front and behind. The first living creature looked like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What a scene, huh? What a scene. Let's take a look at this piece by piece, and let's put it together and see what we can make sense of out of this and see what God is communicating through John and through this vision to us. So verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So we see heaven opened. God is about to reveal something very important here. We see this in a couple of different places in, in, uh, in Scripture. Um, just consider when Jesus is baptized in Luke chapter 3, we see the heavens open, the spirit descends, and a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It's a very important revelation that Jesus is God's Son. The second one, when Peter is instructed to eat unclean animals in Acts chapter 10, which is expanding the ministry and mission to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews, but into the Gentile realms as well, we see that he falls into a trance, he sees the heavens opened in a sheet with all kinds of animals and a voice crying out to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So we're about to see, what we're about to see here in Revelation with heaven opening is a big so this first voice, it says, the first voice spoke to him. That's a reference back to one, chapter 1, verse 10. This is the voice of the glorified Christ. It says he's speaking like a trumpet. I don't know if you have played a trumpet or if you've heard trumpets much, but trumpets are loud and clear. They're brass instruments. They're loud and clear. This message is loud and clear. It's not muffled. It's not like the teacher on peanuts, that wah, wah, wah. It's not some nebulous thing. It is loud and clear. And this bridges from the letters to the following vision. What must take place? So what's interesting here is that in a, wor- in a world that's weary with sin and darkness, where John tells us a precious truth, that God reveals himself. The light of truth and the presence of God breaks through the veil of evil and shines brightly. In a world where John is writing, it's, there's persecution of Christians, there's all kinds of Wicked things that are going on under Domitian in the, in the, in the mid-90s A.D. It's a really, really bad time for Christians. But John is writing them and he says God speaks and God reveals himself. And then we also see because God is sovereign over all times and situations, he's planned from eternity past the things that must happen, the things that must take place. He's already finished writing the book that we are currently reading. The following chapters of Revelation show some really wild things, but none of them take God by surprise. None of them is outside of his careful, guiding hand. This is a great comfort to a people that's persecuted and facing troubled times. So my question to you, the first question this morning of many, what must you do? Many times we get distracted from life by thinking about all the things on our agendas, all the emails sitting in our inboxes, all the stuff that's going on that we need to attend to. This is very strange for me to say as a highly conscientious, task-oriented person. But you really don't have to do those things. You certainly can do them, and maybe you should. But the only thing that you must do is worship the Lord. So let's continue before I get ahead of myself and lose the forest for the trees or or maybe the the glory for the grammar here. Verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John here is in the Spirit here. This is a trance-like state. It's not some charismatic ecstasy of something like like that. He's 
about to receive a revelation from God. He's been transported mentally into the throne room of God. He sees a throne in heaven, and God is seated on it. God is reigning. So John reminds his readers of a beautiful truth. Not only does he reveal himself, but he reigns. He currently is reigning. In John's world, a culture that's opposed to God, an empire filled with horrific evils, in a world that seems so hostile hostile to the gospel, John tells us that God reigns. In our world, a culture so opposed to the gospel and to truth in the middle of a pandemic with racial tensions and with the National Guard setting up a perimeter around Capitol Hill, God reigns. Sure, we may all agree with that in an abstract sense. Of course he reigns. But if you're like me, it's tempting to look around and wonder just what the actual heck is going on. But John is pulling us out of our world. He's pulling us out of the fog of war down here and taking us into the throne room of heaven where we see the God of all creation reigning. It gives us a different perspective on life when we view it from heaven and eternity. It should also give you a different perspective on your own life to know that God is seated on the throne of heaven. This is how we can trust what he says in Romans 8, 28. It says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Because God reigns. We see in verse 2 that there is one on the throne. One seated on the throne. And brothers and sisters, that is not you. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. It is not yours or mine or any other human's. And if he rules in heaven, if he rules over all the earth, does he not rule your life? If I were to enter the throne room of your heart and take a look at what is seated there in that exalted place of worship, what would I find? What is reigning your life? Verse 3 says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So we see here God's appearance. This is imagery again. This is imagery and symbolism, not a literal picture of God. But this picture is of beauty and glory and wealth. The stones mentioned are in the ephah, the chest piece of the high priest that we see in Exodus chapter 25 and 28 and 35. God is portrayed as the light reflected on precious stones. Looking at diamonds, flashing in the light is what kind of comes to mind here. If you've ever been jewelry shopping, if you've picked out an engagement ring or something, they'll give you that whole talk about all the carrots and all these different things. But then you get to look at a diamond, you get to see the light flashing off of it. That's what this is talking about. That's what John is using to communicate this beauty and this glory. The rainbow here pictured reminds us of God's wrath and his mercy and then it, with, with the flood, the global flood in Noah's day, right? His wrath and judging the earth, seeing it as, uh, as, as falling short and wicked and evil only all the time. So he judges it and destroys it. And also his mercy because he renews the covenant. He saves Noah and his family and repopulates the earth. There's also just... For the record, there's an interesting description of God in Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. It's very similar. We see light. We see precious stones. We see a rainbow. Very interesting to see these two side by side. But this is the one. John is describing here the one who dwells in unapproachable light, as 1 Timothy 6, 16 says. 
And this reminds us of the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The point that John is trying to make here is that the Lord is beautiful. He's beautiful in who he is, and he's beautiful in what he does. When I was in high school, I did a study abroad summer program in Oxford, England. And one day we took a trip to London, where they have the Tower of London. It's where they keep the crown jewels, or so they say. I'm still a little skeptical about whether those are the actual ones. But you walk through this series of rooms. You go through this hole, you go through the torture chambers and all these kind of crazy things. You go through this tower, you see the history, and it's a really beautiful museum. It's really awesome. Then you finally walk into this series of rooms with black floors and walls, and they have these display cases that have super bright lights shining on these objects in them. And that's where, they, that's where the crown jewels are displayed. It's really cool to see. But I finally got to the crown, that big purple velvet and gold crown you see the queen wearing in pictures and stuff from back in the day. And when I saw it, I stopped short. And without even thinking about it, without even, like this is an automatic reaction, I stopped short and I just started slowly walking around the case, watching the light dance off of the different jewels. With every tiny movement of my head, I caught a different glint of light. It was breathtakingly beautiful, and it made me want to steal it, if I'm honest. But God is beautiful in who he is, as we've seen here in verse 3. John is trying to describe the beauty that is indescribable. He's beholding the Lord on his glorious throne, trying to express it in words. The royal crown that I saw was so beautiful that it's hard to describe. Even pictures don't do it justice. But God is beautiful in who he is, and he's also beautiful in what he does. Consider the beauty of creation. Mountains, beaches, forests, deserts, animals, plants, galaxies, and atoms. All of it screams order and brilliance and elegant beauty. And God as creator is responsible for creating all of it. But not just natural revelation. Consider the beauty of redemption as well. That God creates and man sins and God redeems. That he takes our sin and rebellion against him and he brings out hope out of chaos and despair. That he gives beauty and joy in the place of our ashes and sorrow and mourning. And he's even redeemed the cross. The cross used to be a symbol of torture and execution and now it is a symbol of our faith. And he makes us new in Christ's work on the cross. He uses Jesus' blood to wash us clean, to remove our sin and guilt and shame, and there's a beauty to his work. Redemption is often messy, but it is always beautiful. Think of the stories that we share during our Redemption Group Celebration Sundays. The darkness and sin that we hear turned into repentance and forgiveness and joy. And it's the work of God in his people. So the Lord is beautiful in who he is, and he is beautiful in what he does. Is he beautiful to you? Does he hold your attention? Do you marvel at him and his work? If so, that's worship. Then in verse 4 we see, Around the throne were 24 thrones, And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So these thrones and elders, these 
So this, again, this is a vision. This is symbolic. But likely these elders are angels. We see in Isaiah 24, there's a reference to elders, angels as elders. There's some debate on this, but I agree with the commentators who say that they represent all of God's people, 24 elders, meaning there's 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. So 24 angelic representatives of all of God's people. That's what um, the, the kind of consensus view is, and I would agree with that. Their white garments represent purity and victory. Their thrones and their crowns, which really would be, don't think like golden crowns, think like wreaths, like olive wreaths. They represent their rule. And we're going to come back to these elders in just a few minutes. But I want to kind of give you some understanding of what they were. Then in verse 5 it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So here we see awesome power. We see lightning and thunder. We see awesomeness and terror in the Lord's presence. This is a recurring symbol in Revelation. You can do some studies on how all these things work together. And then we see the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. It's maybe another way to translate that. But the perfection of the Holy Spirit is what's being talked about there. And then there's this sea of glass like crystal. So it's beautiful. But it's also an impassable barrier. And we'll talk about that shortly. But here we see that the Lord is powerful. He spoke and created the universe. He keeps it all together by the word of his power. The symbols that demonstrate his power and voice are lightning and thunder. I like thunderstorms. I like rain and hearing distant thunder. It's relaxing. But that relaxation turns to tension pretty quickly when I start seeing flashes of lightning through my window and when my house starts shaking from thunder. The howl of the storm sirens doesn't really help either. But the presence of the Lord and his voice are not a relaxing rainstorm to John. They make him perk up and say, whoa, that is power. Our God is the king of kings. He sends angels to do his bidding. And he uses empires as pawns on his chessboard. He is eternal. He operates outside of time and he can command physics to do whatever he wants. He can turn the Nile River into blood. Sure. Turn some water into wine. Consider it done. Part the Red Sea. Of course. Provide manna from heaven. Eat your fill of it. Heal the disease. Anytime. Resurrect the dead. No problem. Stop a violent storm in its tracks just by telling it to be quiet. Watch it happen. Send a herd of demons out of a man and into a herd of pigs. That happened too. That is power, true power. With all of that power, though, does he have the power to change your life? Of course he does. Of course he does. Continuing on in verse 6, it says, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature is like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. This vision is very similar to one in Ezekiel chapter 10. We're talking about cherubim here. 
or a different kind, you know, an angel. The cherubim in Scripture guard the way to the tree of life from Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve are, are removed from Eden. They, he, uh, God places a cherubim there with a flaming sword to protect the way back to the tree of life. And then in the temple, in the tabernacle, they guard, the cherubim guard the, the, the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. We see that in Exodus 25, number 7, and 1 Kings 6 and 8. We also see the illustrations of them are woven into the veil of the tabernacle, the big curtain in the tabernacle that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. They're also carved on the walls of the temple. They're covered with eyes, which is symbolic. It means that they search all of creation, that they watch over the world with diligence. And then we see these creatures. We see a lion, which is the king of beasts, and an ox, which is the most powerful of domesticated animals. We see humans, the crown of creation, and we see eagles, which are the most majestic birds. This vision here is of angelic beings, but... In the same way that the 24 elders represent all of us people, these four angelic beings represent all of creation. We're going to come back to them in just a few minutes. Verse 8 continues on and says, And the four living creatures, and, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These creatures have six wings. This is similar to the vision of seraphim that we see in Isaiah 6. These seraphim cover their faces with two wings because God is awesome. They cover their their feet with two wings because God is holy. And they fly with two more wings, carrying out God's will. These creatures have six wings in that way. And they also, they are full of eyes, meaning they guard God's throne with vigilance. And then we see day and night, they are in continuous adoration. They adore his holiness by saying, holy, holy, holy. They adore his power by saying, the Lord God Almighty. They adore his eternality by saying, who was and is and who is to come. They're praising his attributes. The main point that John is trying to get to here is that the Lord is holy. He is pure, perfect, majestic, and utterly unique. His holiness sets him apart from creation. That's the idea of the crystal sea imagery, the barrier between him and creation. He's untouched by sin, unthreatened by sin. But he's not unconcerned with sin. God is holy, and we are not. But he shares his holiness with us. Even though we've sinned against him, he forgives and redeems us. He deals with our sin and he gives us the holiness of Christ. He makes us holy. And as worshipers and followers of the, of the holy God in heaven, we are to live holy lives. Now there is certainly, I will be the first to attest to my own, there is certainly a reality of sin that persists in fallen creation. And we are sinners. But God has put his holy spirit in us. Our bodies are his dwelling place, his temple. That's why we are to live holy, obedient lives. And that's why we repent when we fall short. God's holiness is our hope. The fact that he shares his holiness with us 
gives us hope for the future. It's why we don't fall into complete and utter despair when we sin. No, we have an advocate who convicts us and who leads us to repentance with kindness. He commands us to be holy and then he equips us through the Spirit to live holy lives. So, brothers and sisters, in what way do you show the holiness of God with the way that you live? Does your life reflect his holiness in you? In what ways do you live with hope in God's holiness? Moving on to verse 9, it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast, down, they cast their crowns down, or they, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So these angelic creatures give glory and honor and thanks. They're worshiping him. As creator of all, God deserves praise and worship and honor. As the king of the universe, he reigns and lives forever. And it says that the elders worship him, casting their crowns. So this is symbolic and represents the idea that any rule or responsibility, any accolades, any recognition that they have gotten on earth has been given back to God. And they have and enjoy, all that they have and enjoy is given to them by God. And anything good they possess or have done is a gift of God to be stewarded. We'll talk about that next week, actually. But they're all praising God directly for his works in creation. The main point here in verses 9 through 11 is that the Lord is worthy. He's the only, the only proper response to God is worship. And Why? Because he deserves it. He's the only one worthy in all of the universe. Think about it like this. If God is creator and if we are created beings and we bear his image, we were created for him, for his glory, to worship him. Everything else that we can experience, we can see, we can touch, we can taste, we can hear, we can smell, everything else is created by God. God is also eternal. He's the only thing that existed before creation, and he brings us to eternal life with him into eternity future. But everything else will pass away. Hebrews, Hebrews 1 says that creation will wear out, and God will change it like you change out of your dirty clothes after working in the yard. He'll just change this creation out for a new one. So if God has created us to worship, and if he's the only creator, and if he's the only eternal one, and if everything else is passing away, why on earth would we worship anything else? Our worship is in vain when we spend it on anything other than God. God is the only one worthy of, deserving of your worship. So worship him. Live your life for him. Know him, follow him, and enjoy him. So let's talk about God's holiness and worth for a minute here. Let's talk about that. Let's take a step back and look at verses 8 through 11 as a whole. All of these creatures are symbolically, symbolically representing all of the redeemed believers in Christ 
and all of creation, all of the animals. They are all worshiping in unison, constantly declaring the Lord's holiness and worth. God is sitting on his throne. He's indescribably majestic and beautiful and awesome. He is holy and he is worthy of our worship. So brothers and sisters, hear me on this. As part of God's redeemed and as part of his creation, you are part of this. We join in with creation and we worship the Lord as Christians. We are unique in creation as image bearers of God as humans. We are valuable because God has redeemed us and atoned for our sins. And it's our job to worship the Lord, to adore his holiness, his power, and his eternality. It is our job to worship the Lord, to ascribe to him glory and honor and power. It's our job to cast our crowns before him. Any honor and glory and responsibility that you've received on earth will be given back to him. All that you have and enjoy has been given to you by God for his glory. And anything good that you possess or have done is a gift from God. And one day, our lives are precious and we have a limited time here on this earth. Our worship is also limited. We have a precious limit to our, to our affections and how we spend them. Let's not spend it on unholy things like sin. Let's not spend it on unworthy things like idols. Let's guard our worship and give it to the Holy One, the One who is worthy. One day we will live and we will worship forever. And it's only because of Christ who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death and was resurrected to the newness of life. That's the only way that we will worship forever and live with the Lord. Our Christ has gone before us to prepare heaven for us. He is the way that we enter into the presence of God. He redeems the curse that banished us from Eden. He redeems the sin that separates us from God. He redeems our death and leads us into the newness of life. He leads us through the cherubim, through the veil, into the holy of holies in heaven. He leads us through those things back to Eden. And one day we will see this vision that John is trying to portray. We'll see it for ourselves. But it won't be a vision. We will enter heaven and say, oh, that's what John was talking about. We'll see the glory of the Lord on his throne. One day our faith will be sight, brothers and sisters. But until then, we spend our lives in worship. This is not just for the future. It is now. We can rejoice because our God reigns in heaven and we worship him. We can worship him in his beauty and in his power. We can join in with all of creation and all of the saints as heaven resounds with his holiness and his worth. We can look forward to an eternity of worship in heaven because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit within us. So whether we eat or drink or sing or play or laugh, we are worshiping. And when we use our spiritual gifts, we are worshiping. When we steward what God has given us for his glory, which we'll talk about again next week, we worship him. When we follow him, we make disciples of Jesus and we pour our lives out as living sacrifices. That is our act of spiritual worship, as Romans 12, 1 says.
here's the thing, Revelation 4 and 5 are really one unit of text. Chapter 5 goes on, so there's a chapter break there, but chapter 5 goes on to depict an interesting scene full of symbolism as well. We see that there's a scroll that's introduced which is sealed and nobody's found who's, who can break the seals and open the scroll. But then we see Jesus come in. And listen to this from Revelation 5, 9 through 14. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the, and, and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. <laughs> and the elders fell down and worshipped. Is this Jesus worthy of your praise? All of heaven rejoices and all of creation worships him. Do you? I started off our time this morning by talking about how we use our bodies and our minds and our time and our money to worship things. But there's only one name who is worthy, brothers and sisters. There's only one whose blood ransoms people for God. There's only one name that can save Jesus. There's salvation in no one else. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that your confession today? Can you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is this Jesus the one that you worship who you spend your life following? I pray you find him worthy of your worship. And I pray that you come to the beautiful truth that this life is but a prelude to an eternity of worship in heaven. So how do we worship? Coming back to the title of this sermon, how do we worship? We worship in response to the Lord and we worship with all of our lives. But more importantly, we worship because the Lord reigns in heaven over his creation. And he is beautiful beyond description. And he is powerful beyond compare. And he is perfectly holy. And he is worthy of our worship. That is how we worship.